Church, I want to invite you to open up to the book of 1 John. So all the way near the back of your Bibles, I want to show you one short verse that we're going to start with, and then we'll kind of get into our text. But 1 John 4, 16. Today is Palm Sunday, sometimes known as the triumphal entry. And this is when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and people cheered and waved palm branches as a sign of of honor and celebration. And what we know about Palm Sunday is this. We know that Palm Sunday is not the main event, right? Palm Sunday is a precursor to a much bigger event, which would be about a week later, right? Where Jesus is put to death on a cross, buried, and then rising from the grave on the third day, the following Sunday. So thinking about Palm Sunday and what we celebrate and what we talk about um, as a church and think about that part of the story, we know that this king, this King Jesus, is not into a temporary earthly kingdom. He's not into the sort of fickle praise of people, these same people who are cheering. What are they going to be doing a week from now? Literally calling for his death. Not just jeering him, but calling for his death. We just sang this line. What the enemy means for evil, you are working for our good. I had someone ask me this week, how do I apply the death and destruction of this part of the story? You know, one application of the cross is anything that looks like the enemy is trying to use for evil in your life, God is working for your good. That's forever stamped in history at the cross. That's what's going on. Now, here's why I know this king isn't into temporary cheering and an earthly kingdom. Because someone opened their mouth and told me. I received it. I didn't make that part of the story up. Someone told me that. They explained what was going on. And because it's true, it forever changed my life. If we aren't told things, we won't know things. This is the heart of what we're talking about with how to share. We're, we're just getting really simple. How do I open my mouth and share the gospel. If you are a Christian, that means by definition, you actually have the Holy Spirit of the living God in you. So you, from the inside out, have this intrinsic little like volcano motive to share and talk about what's most important to you. If I could boil down our motives and our means of witnessing, evangelizing, sharing our faith in Jesus with others, I'd boil it down to the four-letter word love. Love is why we share this great love of God. 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16 is a verse that um, I probably sat and just sat with at least every day for a year, one year. This leapt off the page at me. These first few verses of it, first few words of it. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The distinction between knowing something and really believing it. We might know that an airplane could fly. Proof that we believe it is we buy a ticket and get on the airplane. Make sense? Two different things. Do we know God loves us? Sure, he loves us. He has to. He's God. Now that's a little bit of a cynical way of saying it. But maybe we sit with that for a long, long time. But we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Do you know one of the ways that God for decades now 
has been showing his love to me is how incredibly intimate and personal his love is. This happened as recent as yesterday. I'm taking my nine-year-olds through a little Bible reading program, getting to know God. And yesterday's, on my Bible app, I didn't read ahead. Yesterday's was this, God is love. Guess what our passage was? 1 John 4, 16. We open it up. And I go, guys, we're going to hear this in church tomorrow. This is one of the ways God shows me over and over and over that he loves me. He ties in these little threads that I never plan. And I go, I get it, God, you're right here. You're speaking these words over me as I'm speaking them over my children. God is love and those who, 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 who love abide in God. So love is this motive. It's, it's what is brimming out of our hearts and it is what on top, is what on our top of mind. So we talk about what's important to us. But here's the truth of it. Sharing with someone your excitement for a new restaurant and sharing your, your, your excitement for Jesus can feel like two different conversations, can't they? I don't think you get scared or heart palpitations or sweaty palms or sort of dizziness when you go to share about your favorite restaurant. Anyone get that way? I think you might love food way too much. Like if it's that much, it might be a God. I'm not sure. But usually we just talk about that new restaurant. Hey, I'm just really excited about it. You should try it out. So why does it feel different when we're talking about Jesus? We talked about this a little bit last week. It's, it's weighty. We want to get this right. We think this is really, really important. We actually think there might be some pushback. People might not like what we're saying. I want to say that uh, today we're going to address just, again, some of those fears. And I hope you walk away um, this morning. You won't feel like, oh, now I'm thoroughly equipped. We'll always be learning and growing in this. But I want you to walk away with some handles to kind of hold on to. There's something called the, the what-if monster. What is the what-if monster? The what-if monster is the, the little voice in your head that as you go to open your mouth about sharing about Jesus brings up all kinds of what-ifs. What if they ask you a question you don't know? What if they bring up a topic that you're uncomfortable talking about? What if they get mad at you? What if they tell you never to talk about this again? They get increasingly big, like what if you lose your job? That used to be a far-fetched idea. It's getting more and more real. What if you'll be ostracized from your friend group? What if people will cancel you from their social media account? <gasps> I mean, the what if monster's there, right? And it, and it feeds into our fears. So we're going to look at some of those things. Here's the central truth of last week in case you missed it. Kids, you left and the adults got to play a really fun game last week. It's called one-handed charades. Okay? We're not going to rehash that, but you can ask your parents about that and they'll tell you about it. And what we were talking about last week was this, to not leave the most important message open to misunderstanding. If all we do is signal about who God is and signal that Jesus is good and leave our mouth and mind out of the equation, we're left to guess. Remember in Acts, Peter stands up and says, hey, these men aren't drunk as you suppose. The Holy Spirit falls on these people. He said, it's early in the morning. Let me explain what is happening to you. The triumphal entry. We could guess people could do one-handed charades of what's happening. Fortunately, someone opened their mouth and testified to what was going on during that time. So don't settle for charades when you can use your 
words. Faith comes by hearing. I want you to take a look at this church. Many churches were designed like this. Now, drones weren't available then, uh, neither were helicopters or something like that when we first heard. So the only one who really got to see this in full glory was birds. Um, and, uh, and, and as you look at this church, you go, wow, what an amazing thing. I used to want to be an architect. I thought I wanted to be an architect and, and maybe build churches. And, and I don't build physical churches, but I build the church from the inside out. God steered me elsewhere. But if I was an architect, I'd spend my time doing something like this. I think this is absolutely stunning. I love that we would bring our absolute best to a place of worship. And that's what the architects were motivated by, by doing this. But I want you to ask a question. What if this church never preached the gospel? What if they never sang the great hymns of the faith that we inherited for ourselves? What if there was no writing going on? What if there was no speaking going on? What if it was enough to say, look, our entire church is, is built around what is most central, the cross. We would look at that church as a dead church, as a disobedient church, as a faithless church. We are called to adorn the gospel, dress up the gospel with our behavior, with our actions. We're going to talk about this today. Your face should reveal the good news of great joy you're talking about. But signs are not enough. Signaling is not enough. It's why God gave us a mouth. So open it. Parents, how many times do you say, use your words to little ones? Use your words. Why? Because what are they doing? They're acting out when they should be speaking out and speaking up about what's going on. So we're talking about how to use our words today. Open our mouth. Let me show you two verses. These are in your notes, I believe. They may not be. Jot them down. They're not in your notes. But you can just look at them. Number one is this, that you grow up and gain simply by being obedient to share. When you open your mouth in obedience to share your faith, you are growing up in Christ. Did you know that? God is sanctifying you. He's forming his image in you. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. When I do weddings, it's very, very powerful to review with a couple, to stand before them and charge them about what God calls a husband and a wife to, to stand there and recite vows that they're repeating. That does something to my own marriage when I do that. I am called back to my wedding day. It energizes it. It freshens it up. John and Carol Thomas, congrats on Kayla. We got to go to a wedding last, last weekend. And just seeing that revitalizes it. As you open your mouth and share the good things God has for you, the sovereignty that he has over all things, it reminds your own heart, does it not, that God's good. Here's a second one. You can be certain that your knowledge of God's love will not be ineffective or unfruitful. You can be certain of that. 2 Peter 1.8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What qualities are they? Well, I'm not going to tell you the answer, but I'll give you a hint. Read the few verses right before this passage. It's all these great character qualities that we're to be diligently pursuing. This passage is telling us, church, that you can actually be ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of God. 
You can take your light and hide it and not let the world see it. You can take your truth, put it in a storage unit, and make sure no one takes it from you. This is not our call. That's being ineffective and unfruitful. These verses show that sharing our faith, evangelizing, bearing witness, takes effort. It takes practice. We're growing in this. We're learning from this. If these qualities are yours and they are increasing, then we can be effective and fruitful. So I talked about the what-if monster that asks all kinds of scary questions. Do you know what blows all that apart is perfect love. Perfect love and fear can't coexist. So hear me on this. When you think about fears that come over you, and all of us have fear sharing our faith. Did you know that? The Apostle Paul, who was willing to bleed regularly for his faith, prayed for courage. If the Apostle Paul prayed for courage, do you think I need to pray for courage? I do. Would you pray for my courage to open my mouth as I should? Because I pray for you. I pray that you would have the courage to open your mouth as you should. So perfect love comes in and casts out fear. The fear what-if monster is different than the perfect love what-if questions. The perfect love what-if questions looks something like this. What if in my opening my mouth, someone is ushered into the kingdom and presence of God for all eternity? What if I'm the one God has appointed in this neighborhood, at this cubicle, at this desk, in this class, in this family? What if God has me appointed here to be the church individually where we can't be the church collectively? What if I get to be used by God in some powerful way? Let me ask you a couple more what-if questions. If your motive is perfect love, and you're not sharing the love of Christ with someone else to somehow try to gain something for yourself, which I can't really imagine doing because there's no brownie points for like earning more decisions. If, you're, if your motive is perfect love and what you're sharing is the perfect love of God, shouldn't that cast out fear? I think it should. So let me ask a couple more what-if questions. What if guilt and shame and pride were not associated with witnessing? What if guilt and shame and pride were not associated as you share your faith with other people? What if confrontation and defensiveness that you often fear, what if much of that were actually dissipated? Much of it blew away. There's still going to be some always because the message of Jesus is counter to our own sinful human heart and culture always. What if the ones you were sharing with actually carried most of the heavy lifting of the conversation? And finally, what if this exchange, this opening my mouth to share Christ with someone, actually left both of you with low blood pressures and genuine well-wishing at the end? I'll tell you who does this masterfully is Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort is a guy who goes out on Huntington Beach Pier on a regular basis. He's holding a camera. And he will talk with people 
about the afterlife, about whether they think they're a good person or not. And it will end over and over and over again with, thank you for sharing with me. It's incredible. I watch those all the time on my lunch hour. I tell you about those. Check it out. Here's what I want you to stop and think about. Don't look at your notes for a second. I want you to consider if someone comes to you and says, hey, I know that you're a Christian. I think God's been talking to me. I'm not a Christian. Can you please tell me how to become a Christian? What would you say? Just think about that for a second. I, I loved it. I just, saw, I just saw Elizabeth Golding say, yes, <laughs> that's the right answer. That's the starting point. I didn't even think of that. You should say yes. After you say yes, what would you say? Now, let's not do, let's not do a workshop here just because we have a lot to get to. But I want you to think of that because we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, always. We should have like a 15-second, minute-and-a-half, and 10-minute answer to that. Like the back of our hand, be able to think of it right away. I want to show you in your notes today um, this idea. The gospel answers these four basic questions. Uh, To whom are we accountable to? If you're taking notes, write the word God, our creator. The gospel addresses who we're accountable to. I want you to think back to Acts. As we, as we work our way through Acts, keep watching for these four questions. To whom are we accountable to? To God. What is our problem? Now, again, how we share is really important. What's your problem? Right? That's a different question. But genuinely getting to what is our problem, meaning human beings, it's sin. That's our fundamental problem. What is God's solution? Jesus. And then what is our response? That question number four is really important. What is our response? In other words, the gospel means good news. How is this good news for me? Is there anything I'm supposed to do to ensure that this good news of great joy actually applies to me? Do you know that the gospel has sort of two sides to it? It's a two-edged sword to begin speaking about the truth of the Bible. Why? Because we're all living a life, and we are going to one day be held accountable to someone, the great judge, God, our creator. And what we will be held accountable for is our own life, how we lived it. The double-edged sword of the gospel is its good news and great joy, And it's good news and terrible pain, depending on how you respond to it. So that fourth and final question may be the most challenging for me. is calling people to a decision today, to a response. What's the response we're to call people to? Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. So take this little framework. You're going to get to talk about this as a community group. There's a lot of little helpful ways to kind of think about this and remember this. And I hope that you'll be sharing those and talking about those as a group. One of the things that has helped our family immensely, in fact, yesterday, we sort of role-played some of this. We just went around the circle and said, someone asked you that question, how would you answer? And then when they got stuck, they could call for sibling help. The siblings all wanted to help right away. We said, time out, siblings, don't help. Let's let's kind of role-play how this looks. And then people could jump in. We've gone through this thing called the New City Catechism. It lives on my phone. 
And the New City Catechism is designed to answer these kinds of questions. Well, sin, what is sin? Well, we know how to talk about sin. Why, why do we need a Savior? Well, because there's a problem. How do we know we're accountable to God? It helps with all those kinds of things. Anyone uh, in here a fisherman or fisherwoman? Raise your hand. Okay. Some? I'm very proud. These are like sort of weak. They're lukewarm. <laughs> lukewarm. There we go. Lukewarm fisherman. <laughs> um, I'm a terrible fisherman. I like fishing when I'm catching fish, getting bites, or eating fish. That's, that's the fun of it for me. I'm sitting for long periods of time quietly, waiting with nothing happening. Absolute boredom. Terrible, terrible way to spend my day. Jesus calls the first disciples who are by trade fishermen. And what does he say to them? He says, I will make it. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Totally reframed what their purpose in life was, sort of lifted their vision, but took them from where they are, come as you are, but don't stay that way. I've got bigger fish to fry. That one just came to my head. All right. I've never done this, but I think this would be a remarkable thing to see sometime. Um, the worst fishing experiences for me, I had a mom who was a dedicated fisherman, so to her, she loved doing it whether she caught fish or not. Sounds psychotic to me. We would sit in an aluminum boat and be told, shh, don't fidget, shh. The fish can hear you. Fish have like crazy good hearing, I think. So I had to sit still, hard for me. I had to be quiet, hard for me. And I had to do absolutely nothing. Incredibly hard for me. So I would sit here like this, and I would get bored. I'd start flicking. I don't know what I would do, but I would not do this for very long. I'd get in trouble fishing a lot. What if I went fishing with my frying pan in my hand, and I sat in my boat waiting for a fish to jump up, land on that, on that pan? I guess I'd have to bop him, because he'd probably be flopping around. How many fish do you think I'd catch in my lifetime? Probably zero. I agree with you, Chris. It could happen, but highly unlikely. Can I just tell you that the number of times I have had happen what I just described to you, where people walk up and say, hey, you're a Christian. I want to become a Christian too. Can you please share the gospel with me? That's something similar to a fisherman holding a frying pan, waiting for people to jump into. You would starve. If your diet was fish, you would starve doing that. If you care for fish, if fish are lost people apart from God, you would begin to think, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's more I should be doing. And there is more that you should be doing. So I want you to be ready with the frying pan. I want you to be ready for that answer to happen. But in my experience, the experience of most people, it's somewhat like that, sitting there waiting for people to just jump into your frying pan to ask you about Jesus. So some of what we're going to talk about... um, leans on us, not just letting people know we're a Christian. If people don't know we're a Christian, they won't even know where to go for help. But even if they know you're a Christian, oftentimes they won't come and jump into the frying pan themselves. So as you look at Jesus kind of walking through, how does Jesus do things? Jesus regularly aroused curiosity, didn't he? Think of these two A's. He aroused curiosity and he answered questions. He he preached, he taught, he went out and pursued, but he did a lot of arousing curiosity and answering questions. Remember that opportunities to have spiritual conversations that point to Jesus are everywhere. Remember the white van from last week? 
White vans are everywhere. Start looking for white vans this week. You will see white vans are everywhere in our city. That is you praying for opportunities. God, would you open my, would you give me opportunities to share you with, with people who, who don't know you? They're everywhere. You begin praying for them and looking for them. They will be there. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Your notes, if you're astute, you've already noticed that we're going to cover uh, three chapters today in, uh, in this sermon. Now, because we're covering three chapters, we're going to just sort of skim and take a few verses from each spot. But what I want to do is I want to give you uh, four ways to share the good news of great joy the way Jesus did. So we're actually going to see this from Paul, Paul's writing. But where did Paul learn to share the faith? From what he received. So anything we're learning from Paul, we're really pointing back to Jesus. And I'm going to show you very specifically how Jesus shared the good news of great joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And um, uh, have your Bible open, be looking at this. We're going to be looking at this passage and kind of coming back to it again and again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, having this ministry... By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Stop for a moment. What ministry do we have? And why do we not lose heart? Look back up and see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 says this. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We don't lose heart because God gives us all we need to share the gospel. Why don't we lose heart in this ministry of opening our mouth? Because our sufficiency isn't in us. I remind myself of this regularly. Dave, you don't have all the answers. You can't possibly fathom the questions that will come from this conversation. Take a deep breath. This sufficiency is not from yourself. It's from God. So we don't lose heart and we're confident and bold because God supplies all that we need. Who gave us this ministry? God did. If God's giving the ministry to regular, everyday Christians to open their mouth and bear witness for him, that means he's going to supply what we need. We're going to see this soon, but we're called ambassadors. We're going to see this, that God makes his appeal to lost people through us. He could do it a lot of different ways. He chose to do it through us. All right, back to our passage. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves 
as servants for Jesus' sake. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one on how to share is to share honestly like Jesus. Share honestly like Jesus. If you were to go through the Gospels and just circle every time Jesus said this, I'm not sure how many you'd come up with, but doesn't Jesus regularly say this, I tell you the truth? Truly, truly, I say to you, I tell you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Listen to me because I'm speaking the truth. Jesus does this over and over and over again. Simply and plainly speak the truth. Now look at our passage. This is a real question. I want answers. What has Paul renounced? What does he refuse to do as he shares the gospel? Changing it, tampering it with it. What else? Look back at the passage. Look at the screen. He's renounced dishonesty. Cunning ways. What are some examples of what this looks like? What kind of deception or tricking people or manipulation or twisting of the word of God do you see right now? Saying that if you trust in Jesus, your life will be perfect. There's a, there's a category of preacher I just want you to watch for. It's called health, wealth, and prosperity preaching. It leaves out any notion or mention of sin most often. If on a regular basis you are hearing preaching that doesn't contradict you and only feeds what already you believe and like, there's a good chance it's a made-up God of this world. One of the things in sharing the gospel is you actually want people to realize this is a weighty decision. This is something you ought to carefully consider. What are other ways people tend to practice cunning or manipulation or deception? Rob? Yep. Yeah, a whole other sermon could be um, the idea that language right now is being stolen. Biblical language is being stolen and used a different way. Let me give you two power pro tips here. One is look at the Bible for how it talks about it, and then go to a Webster's Dictionary from, let's say, 1950. Okay? You could probably go even sooner than that. Many words right now in Webster's still say the way we've always used certain words. But let me give you a couple of words. Love is being hijacked and used differently. Man, woman, tolerance, justice, right? Aren't these words being hijacked? And it's a non-starter in conversation if, how about oppressed? If you're, being, if you're being told you're, you're, you're not being this way or are being that way or bigot, I mean, these are some of these words, be really paying attention to that and be understanding that. That's, there's a lot of manipulation that is going on right now. 
Any other thoughts about how people tamper with the word of God or practice cunning and deception? James. Perfect. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've done this in other sermons, and tons of people do a great job with this. I learned this, I think, most from a guy named Frank Turek. He's an apologist. But there's many, many, many self-refuting claims out there. A self-refuting claim is uh, something that people say regularly, and their own statement does not um, withstand what it is telling you. So, for instance... um, no one can know the truth. That's a self-refuting claim. You would ask the person, is that true? And they go, well, yeah, it is. Well, how do you know? Because you just said no one can know the truth. Right? So watch for those. Those are everywhere. People make those statements on a regular basis without, um, without even understanding that they're doing it. Here's another one really popular right now. Um, is, is the idea that no one has the right to tell someone else how to believe. No one has the right to tell someone else how to believe. Have you ever come across that? Raise your hand. I want to see it. Okay, I come across this all the time. A person saying that is trying to get me to believe the way they believe. It's a self-refuting statement. So watch for those. And there's a way to do this in a very gracious, even humorous way that doesn't have to just blow up the conversation and the interaction. Watch for those. All right, let me move on. Here's what I want to say with this. God does not need your help raising the spiritually dead. Can we agree on that? God doesn't need our help. With just a whisper, in fact... Many people, we've had people, particularly from the Middle East, who have shown up at this church because in a dream, Jesus told them to go check out a Christian church. God doesn't need us to raise the spiritually dead. He invites us. That's an incredibly powerful truth. So we rest on that. We honor Jesus by speaking truthfully and simply. Here's a question for you. This doesn't quite make community groups, but I think this is a really penetrating question. How are you personally tempted to tamper with God's word? How are you personally tempted to do what Paul says he's renounced doing? How are you tempted to tamper with God's word? Are there topics that you hope people won't bring up? The fear monster, the what if monster is, well, what if they bring this up? You know what I want to challenge you to do is I want to challenge you to bring the light of God's truth and the perfect love that you're sharing and the perfect love that you're motivated to sharing that person and go research those topics. I have a book on my shelf. I'll loan it to the first person who wants to borrow it. Otherwise, you can go buy it for yourself. I'm going to quote from him in a second. This is a prayer we had last week. I have enough faith in the truth that I happily abandon the temptation to sell it. Woo! God doesn't need your help. People are always going to be offended at the truth of God. Don't be obnoxious by shoving it down their throat. But, but you don't need to tamper with it. There's a book called Skeletons in God's Closet. And a skeleton in a closet is an expression for what? It means something. I hope people don't find this out about me. I've got this thing in my past. I hope no one opens this closet. They can get to know me, but I'm going to keep this hidden. 
The book title says it all. What are the skeletons in God's closet? They change over time. In fact, when this guy wrote this book, which wasn't that long ago, he touched on three topics. Let me give you, um, let me give you the ones that, that he was specifically addressing in this book. Um, the doctrine of hell, that people would burn for all time for their sin. The doctrine of judgment, and the idea and picture we see in the Old Testament of a holy war, God's holy war. Those were the three topics. There'd be three different topics now if you were to write the book today. This is only probably a 10-year-old book. But these doctrines and stories that make us uncomfortable, this book points this out, that instead of leaving that closet door shut and saying, don't you dare ask about that. Instead, God is the one who keeps flinging it wide open and putting it in our face to address. If you believe that all truth is God's truth, you will not fear the truth. Keep digging into these things. Um, let me show you this, this, uh, this quote. In fact, by the way, this week in particular, you will notice uh, blogs, articles, magazine covers, TV shows, who was the real Jesus? Who was the real Mary Magdalene? How do we know this? We have the inside scoop on, wh- on whether the resurrection really happened. I, I used to spend a lot of time reading those because a part of that is that's, that's my window into what spiritual seekers are going after. It's easier to buy sort of a Time or a Newsweek at the newsstand um, than striking up a conversation with one of those Christians. So I'd read that and just sort of hear and see like, What's, what's in these stories? This is everywhere. It's on culture's lips. Look at this quote. Refusing to look boldly into the parts of God's story we fear intimidates us from following Christ without reservation and placing full confidence in his gospel. I think some Christians just don't want to go there. Where's there? I don't know. It's different. It's different for everyone. Could be that part of your own past is a part of the story that you go, I hope people don't ask about that because that's a painful part of my thing that I haven't worked on. So instead of leaving it in the dark, drag that thing into the light so you can share more openly. What are the positive ways that he describes in this passage? He refuses and renounces certain things, but he does other things. What are they? It's on your screen. It's also in your Bible. It's been there for a long time. What are the positive things that he embraces of how he's going to share? But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So I refuse certain ways of practicing, and I pick up other ways of practicing. So simple, open truth, appealing to the conscience. Paul gives some insights in verse 3 and 4 that influences our evangelism. He removes the expectation that every time you share the gospel, someone's going to get it and receive it. We looked at the parable of the four soils, where one in four of those soils did the good seed take root and actually begin to bear fruit. That's setting our expectation that many, if not most, will stay on the wide road. What Paul's saying in this passage really plainly is this. 
our gospel is veiled to people, and it's veiled because the God of this world has blinded their hearts and minds. So what it means is this. Some of us are tempted, if someone rejects us, to immediately take that on ourselves. I must be doing it wrong. I must have the wrong message. I must have said that too strongly or not strongly enough. It could be that you need to just lean and rest on the fact that you were motivated by love. You did the best you could. And to recognize that the God of this world has blinded many people and our gospel is veiled. So keep at it. Don't lose heart. Let me point you to John 8. And you don't need to turn there if you don't want. This is in your notes also, but you can go look at this. In a single incident, we actually see what Paul is talking about in the life of Jesus. It captures this verse. Here's what, listen carefully. Jesus saying this, which one of you convicts me of sin? What's Jesus doing? He's appealing to everyone's conscience. Which one of you convicts me of sin? He's appealing to conscience. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Do you see the honestly? Jesus just shared honestly. I'm telling you the truth. Why don't you believe me? And he says this, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. They're blinded to the truth. Do you see how this passage in, in 2 Corinthians is being worked out in the life of Jesus? Appeals to conscience. He shares honestly. He's renounced shameful ways. And he's pointing out that people will be and are blinded by the truth. All right, number two, share urgently. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says this, from, or the, the gospel records this, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He actually says this over and over and over again. And that simple repeated phrase doesn't sacrifice truth or urgency. They're both sitting right there. There's an urgency to it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. He calls for urgent change. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Flip over to uh, 5.20. It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, Christ making, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, who, he, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in the favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you hear the urgency? We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So if you look at these words, Paul is imploring them. Elsewhere, we see Paul was persuading them week after week after week in the temple, persuading them, imploring them, appealing to them. Never think it is wrong to use all that is in your power to move people to see the truth of God's love for them to see themselves as being accountable to their maker, to see themselves as in, as in a place of grave danger because of their sin. Be reconciled to God. Uh, 
Rob, I think, uh, I think you were the one that brought this up, maybe. But it means that people are not in their natural state reconciled to God. That's one of the ways people tamper with, with the Bible. God is love. God loves everyone. We're all God's children. So having an understanding that we're not all saved at birth. In fact, we're all under God's wrath because of our sin at birth. And unless there is what the, what the theologians call justification, being made right by God, by receiving Jesus Christ as a cover, we are currently in grave danger. If we're not reconciled to someone, it means we're at odds with them. The Bible describes people naturally born as enemies of God. Even that super nice, sweet old lady that lives next to you. Even, I mean, you just, you can't fathom it. But, but if you could see them spiritually, they're enemies of God. COVID's an interesting uh, picture of this. We just had this worldwide pandemic that, again, you couldn't have dreamed this up the year before 2020. But COVID's not even an accurate picture of sin because of this. People got COVID, and even when we weren't sure exactly what was going on, if COVID were 100% deadly on every person it touched and everyone automatically had COVID, that's the picture of sin. We have a new framework for worldwide good news of ways of salvation to talk about in physical form. But like all sort of metaphors, it's like sin and the gospel in some ways, but it's also not like sin and the gospel in some ways. So imagine being born infected with COVID and you will certainly die from it prematurely if something doesn't happen to change it. That's the picture that the Bible gives of sin. So be reconciled to God. This is why the urgency is there. I want to make one quick comment on verse 6-1 because this is important. He implores them not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. What he's talking about right there is, and this is for all of us, church, not to make false converts. A false convert is getting someone to agree with you, to pray a prayer, to fill out a card, to walk an aisle, to raise a hand, to bow a head, and give them the impression that their magic incantation of prayer somehow saved them. There's a time when you should not push people for a decision. You can see in the conversation of where it is, I was in a conversation with a guy one time, and he said, I'd love to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm holding the frying pan going, you will? You, you do? That's awesome! Let's go! As I began to talk to this guy, you know what he was doing? He was adding one more way of salvation to his litany of ways of salvation he had already had. And he, I think he literally said this phrase, one more couldn't hurt. I did not say, well, good, let's get you saved, brother. Sign. Pray. It'd be creating a false convert. It's receiving the grace of God in vain. So there's a guarding against that, that we don't want people just to agree with us or make a simple decision. Jesus shared urgently. Just think back on all the parables that he told. 
Jesus told lots and lots and lots of stories, and they speak of people blindly living like they have all the time in the world. He describes people who are cruising along in their life. They have no idea that something's about to come unexpectedly, either the end of their life or the end of the age, judgment. Regularly, Jesus is calling for people to have a sense of, wake up, urgently looking at matters. People are going to be held accountable to sin. The call to act is right now. This is our call as well. So in this passage, we see Paul, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. So call for a decision now. I would be remiss if I didn't stop right now and say, if you read those four questions of the gospel and you realize I have never come to know and believe and put my trust in Jesus. I haven't repented and placed my faith in Jesus. Friend, I would tell you, today is the day of salvation. That can happen right now, where you are able to say, I do repent of my sins. That's repentance. I do place my whole weight, my whole trust in leaning on the work of Jesus to cover my sin. There's nothing I even need to do to empower you to do that. That's a transaction that can take place between you and God. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. I'd be happy to walk you through more of what that means. Let me give you the final two quickly. This one's short. Share joyfully just like Jesus. Can I show you an incredible part of this verse? Look at verse 6-1. It says, working together with him. We're ambassadors of God, God making his appeal through us, and those four little words, working together with him. Who's him? God. The sovereign that we just sang about. Our creator whom we're accountable to. Working together with him. We are teammates of God, not because he has to use us, but because he wants to use us. Should that not blow our minds every day? Friend, let it blow your mind. God, I'm your teammate today. I'm your man. I'm your woman. As I go out of this door, I'm working with you. You're working with me. What joy that is. Luke 15, I just wrote the whole chapter because you can just read it. Jesus talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. In all three of those little short stories, When the sheep is returned, when the coin is found, when the son comes home, church, there is great rejoicing. It's a party like you can't believe when a single sinner turns from their life of wrath and judgment and pain and frustration and being at enmity with God to receiving life and forgiveness and hope and inheritance. The message we share is good news of great joy, according to the angels in Luke chapter 2. Let our sharing, let our witnessing be filled with joy. Here's the last one for today, is to share biblically, just like Jesus That means share with the Bible and share in line with the Bible. How many times does Jesus um, ask questions of the Bible? So he's in an interaction with someone, and he says, how do you read it? What What does the law say? 
He's drawing a person out. How do you read the scriptures? And he begins to let them ask. I told you that there's a way of sharing in a way that actually puts most of the burden on other people. And it's quite simply this. When you hear people malign Jesus, make a false statement that, well, we're all God's children anyway, or say those Christians want to legislate morality and that's nonsense, there's two questions that are super powerful for us. Number one is this. What do you mean by God? You said it was irrational to believe in God. What kind of God are you talking about? If that's a genuine question, that opens a dialogue. It opens an an interesting interaction with another human being. Don't use it to manipulate. Don't use it to back people into a corner. Don't use it to, to do a zinger, I gotcha moment. Learn from that person. Because again, you may find yourself defending a God that you don't believe in. Because you take on, well, no, it's not irrational to believe in God. And you begin to launch into your speech. After someone defines what they mean by the Bible is full of contradictions or um, it's irrational to believe in God or Christians are hypocrites and just a giant mess, you can ask them a second follow-up question. It's this. How did you come to believe that? It's the why question. Why do you believe it's irrational? Why do you believe that all religions are the same? Why do you believe that it doesn't matter what we do here on earth? And again, you're beginning to have them defend their position. Christian, can you hear me on this? It is not your job or duty to go and defend every single thing people can point at the truth. That actually, I think, is like chasing the wind. You will find yourself run ragged. Ben, would you come on up? I close with 1 Corinthians 15. I just want you to think about how biblically Jesus did things And how Paul appeals to scripture. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and in which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, the word he preached to them, the gospel he received, the gospel he gave, the gospel that we stand on is the scriptures. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Church, we are utterly privileged to share in these different ways like Jesus. Isn't it powerful to know God is forming himself in us? You are becoming more Christ-like by the day. Close your eyes if you would and pray with me. God, it is an unspeakable gift to be a steward of the mysteries of God. You tell us plainly that you hide this treasure, you put this treasure in very simple very plain jars of clay so that the power, the light would not be mistaken that it somehow is coming from us. We don't manufacture truth. We share it. What we received, God, would you help us faithfully, joyfully, biblically, honestly, and urgently give away to others. Help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen.